Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 26, we read. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, and after the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. In chapter 4, Jesus is teaching a series of parables. The themes have included sowing. In verses 1 through 20, he'll return to that theme in verses 30 through 34. Shining in verses 21 through 25. Reaping or harvesting here in verses 26 through 29. And again later, trusting in verses 35 through 41. Now remember what we've already learned about parables. A parable is an earthly story that describes a heavenly truth. The parable explains what happens to the fruitful seed that's already been mentioned in the parable of the sower and the seed and the soil. The seed is the gospel and the soil is the good ground or a receptive heart. Now, most of the parables in the Bible are in Matthew and Mark and Luke and they're repeated. This one parable is exclusive to Mark, it appears in no other gospel, and the parable is not without its difficulties. Some suggest it may picture the Lord Jesus himself casting seed on the earth during his public ministry, and then he returns to heaven. William MacDonald writes, quote, the seed begins to grow mysteriously, imperceptibly, invincibly. From a small beginning, there develops a harvest of true believers. When the proper time arrives, the grain will be harvested and taken to the heavenly garner or that heavenly silo or the place where the grain is stored. Another option is the parable is to serve as an encouragement to believers or disciples in the sense that it is our responsibility to sow the seed. We may sleep by night and rise by day, like it says in verse 27, knowing that God's word will have a powerful, effectual impact. God's word by its mysterious and miraculous power, apart from human wisdom, apart from human manipulation, apart from human skill, apart from human ability, will have its, an, its effect on the human heart. And so you might be discouraged. You might be thinking, it doesn't matter that I pray for this particular person or that I tell them the truth about the gospel. But you couldn't be further from the truth, because remember, the Bible says that it is powerful, sharper than any two edged sword, that it cuts between soul and spirit. It is a powerful weapon and tool. We may plant, we may water. But it is God who gives the increase. Now, the difficulty with this interpretation is verse 29, 
where the same person who sows is the same person who reaps when the grain is ripe. The parable contains encouragement and warning. The gospel will spread. The gospel will grow. The seed will mature. It will ripen. It will produce fruit. The gospel will produce a harvest. And so we begin with a kingdom parable. In verse 26, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. We begin, first of all, with that expression, the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Very simply, the kingdom of God is the place where God rules and reigns. That's very simple, isn't it? It is the place where Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the place where God acts specifically and sovereignly. Now, in Luke's gospel, chapter 17, verse 20 and 21, Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here, see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Some translate the phrase within you as among you. The idea is that the necessary elements for God's kingdom was among them. Clearly, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, weren't connected to the kingdom from inside of their souls. I'm going to suggest to you that when Jesus says the kingdom is within you or within your grasp or all of the elements are necessarily there, he's speaking something very differently. If I said, where's the magic kingdom? And you go, it's in Orlando, Florida. I've been there. You can go by plane. You can go by train. You can go by bus or car. When you get to the magic kingdom, you can look at Tomorrowland. You can look at Fantasyland. You can go to Orange County and visit the magic kingdom. So when Jesus says that the kingdom of God, it isn't you go to Orange County or you go to Jefferson County. The kingdom of God is the place where God rules and reigns. So what does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground? Is the kingdom of God like the seed or is the kingdom of God like what happens when the seed is sown? Is it like sowing Planting, growth, harvest. The kingdom parables include parables of crisis and parables of growth. You're going to discover something that that imagery of planting, watering, harvesting is something that Jesus is going to use time and time again. If the kingdom of God is like the seed, we can think of it as an inward 
germinal principle. In other words, this is something where the gospel comes inside of the human heart. The word of God is placed in the fruitful ground, the honest and good heart, which results in a fruitful life. The idea is that the heart is changed. And so when the heart is changed, so is the character. And so again, at the end of the verse, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter the seed on the ground. And so as if a man implies some human effort in this sense. Remember, Jesus will later tell his apostles and disciples, go into all of the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Telling them to observe everything that I've told you to observe. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so the idea is that there is a sense in which there is some human effort, not for salvation, but for propagation of the gospel. And so we might think of this first verse as a preparation which is going to lead to a propagation. The seed in the ground is religion in the heart. And by that, I don't mean man's attempt to find God. That's not what I mean by religion. By religion, I mean the truth of God and the power of God's word. By that, I mean the presence of Jesus, the sum and the substance of the revelation of God that comes into the human mind and then into the human heart. The seed is the gospel. And so we talk about the seed being sown. And then in verse 27 and 28, the seeds grow. Look what it says in verse 27. And should sleep by night and rise by day. And the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. Now, for those of you who have ever been on a farm or raised on a farm or your mother and father were farmers, you understand that the farmer has to exercise a great deal of faith and a great deal of patience. The farmer finds the field and plows the field. The, the farmer prepares the field and plants the seed. And then waters the seed. The farmer then goes to bed at night, but in during the night, the seed germinates and begins to grow. Some of you as kids may have heard fairy tales like Jack and the Beanstalk, how Jack exchanges the family cow for some magic beans and they're tossed outside. And while the family is sleeping, a gigantic beanstalk grows up into heaven. And Jack, of course, will follow the beanstalk and wind up where the giant is living. And so for many people, they see a kind of a fairy tale story here. But remember, a parable is not a fairy tale. It is an earthly story that represents a heavenly truth. What is the heavenly truth? The seed is silent. It begins in the soil. It ends in the sky. Its growth is gradual and secret. It's true that the farmer plows the field and plants the seed, but the farmer doesn't cause the seed to germinate and grow. It's true that we as human beings might participate in planting a seed. It's true that we as human 
beings might participate in telling someone the truth about God and the truth about Jesus, how he loves you and how he died on the cross and how he rose from the dead. But only God can cause that seed to germinate and grow. As a matter of fact, that expression and grow is the verb makino. It's only here in the Greek New Testament. It's in the middle voice. It literally means to grow long or to become long or to grow. The idea is that there's a sense of mystery and miracle that surrounds the germination of the seed. And there's the image. Within each seed lies this miraculous power to perpetuate life itself. I was reading this week, quote, a single kernel of corn can produce thousands of seeds within a few months. A dot-sized poppy seed can make tens of thousands like itself in a single summer. Every plant is programmed to produce its own seed. Scientists can analyze and take apart the many chemical compounds within a seed, but no scientist has ever been able to produce a synthetic seed. This is because... Even the quote-unquote simplest seed is entirely too complex for mankind to reproduce. Every seed is produced only by an amazing pattern of sexual union determined by the special construction of the parent plants. Most seeds appear to be pieces of dead organic matter. Yet even wheat seeds sealed inside Egyptian tombs for 4,000 years, bring forth new life when it's planted and watered, unquote. The Bible may look just like a simple book sitting in your lap. The page might look like simple paper, and the words may look like simple ink. It looks like it doesn't have the ability to do anything. But the moment you speak those words... The moment you say things like, and to such as would receive and to them, he gave the power to become children of God. The moment you say words like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. A powerful seed is planted in a waiting heart and a question is generated. Can my sin be forgiven? Is it possible for someone like me to experience hope and life and redemption and reconciliation with the Father? You have to understand something. Seeds are hardwired for growth. And so are Christians. When the seed of the word of God is planted inside of your heart, there is something mysterious and miraculous that's planted inside of you. Each and every one of you who have come into a right relationship with God in Christ is hardwired for growth. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the, the day of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, he also says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. It isn't the words that I say. It isn't the passion that I generate. It is the reality of a miraculous seed inside of a waiting heart that creates a mechanism for growth and propagation. 
And so in verse 28, Jesus continues and he says, for the earth yields crops by itself. First, the blade, then the head. After that, the full grain in the head. Preparation leads to propagation. Remember, the seed germinates. Even a little seed can find a fissure in a rock or cement, penetrate that hard heart and make its way to the surface. Think about it. The forming of the ear and the ripening of the grain becomes a type and a picture of moving from immaturity to maturity. The growth is constant. The growth is sure. The growth is measured. The growth is gradual. And that expression, for the earth yields crops by itself. In the original language, it says, automate. That's a borrowed word. You use it and I use it all the time. If you have a car and you don't have to shift, it's called an automatic. If you have a tea maker or a coffee maker that all you have to do is push a button, it's automatic. It means spontaneous. It means of necessity. It means self-moving. And so there's a sense of mystery. There's a sense of miracle in the process. Physical growth and maturation is normal and expected in every living creature. Every mom and dad expects it in their child. As a matter of fact, they begin to panic if their children aren't growing normally. And so it is with spiritual growth. Physical growth is evidence of life. Spiritual growth is evidence of spiritual life. When I was a kid in the fourth grade, we had a project. We brought home avocado seeds. And some of you remember pricking it with toothpicks and you would put it in soil with a styrofoam cup in order to see if you could prompt the avocado plant to grow. And so every day at five o'clock, religiously, I would remove the seed from the soil to see if, if it had started growing. See, you're laughing because you know how stupid that is. That the seed will never grow if I keep taking it out of the soil. And so it is with you. For whatever reason, we feel obligated to check other people's roots. To see whether or not they're growing. But the reality is you're not responsible for the person next to you or the person in front of you or the person behind of you. You're responsible to know your own condition. And by the way, there are two conditions necessary for spiritual growth. The ground, number one, must be good ground. Remember in Mark chapter 4, verse 20, there's fruitful ground and there's unfruitful ground. So there must be good seed sown in good soil under favorable conditions. If a hurricane comes along, it can remove both seed and soil. Or a storm. But think about it for just a moment. With good seed, good soil, and also good conditions, growth is inevitable and unstoppable. It's true spiritually. It's also true in reality. If you gripe, complain, 
if there's something inside of you that you feel drawn to sow hatred and division and selfishness and wickedness. Make no mistake about it. It will yield a crop. So many people engage in all kinds of wicked behavior, including sexual behavior. And they go, oh, Lord, kill the crop. No. The reality is that good soil and good seed almost inevitably will produce life. And that is the truth. Even a small blade of grass will find its way and make its way up in the pavement. The kingdom of God appears to be like that process of growth, internal, invisible, invincible. And so the believer's growth includes that process of maturation. The growth begins. It continues. It is gradual. It is day after day and night after night. The blade becomes an ear. The ear becomes corn. It appears and ripens. And so it is our growth in in Christ and our growth in God. But our growth isn't simply a passive growth, but it's an active growth. Clearly, it is miraculous. The believer, though can still trust the Lord and wait upon the Lord for growth. Our trusting and waiting and working are all active. You see, this is one of the reasons why we encourage you to get involved with a biblical foundations class. This is one of the reasons why I encourage men to be involved in a men's ministry or women to be involved in a women's ministry or student to be involved in a student ministry. It isn't It isn't because I get more brownie points the more classes you attend. But I do get more reward the more growth you experience. Because one day, one day, I'm going to have to stand before Jesus. And I'm going to have to give an account of my life and my ministry and your life and your ministry. And someone is going to ask, what did you say to them? And I need to be able to say, I encourage them to grow. I encourage them in Christ-like behavior. And so at this particular point, what we should do is we should ask two important questions. What does spiritual growth look like? And what does Christian maturation look like? These are important. Earlier this week, I was reading that Hannibal, Missouri is going to be doing a monument, if you will, in a museum to Mark Twain. He's arguably the the father of American literature. He was born in Missouri, but he was raised in Hannibal. And it was the, the childhood setting of Hannibal, Missouri, where he wrote his books, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. And he wrote, quote, When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. We laughed because of the obvious reality. The maturation wasn't taking place in the old man. It was taking place in the young man. What does maturation look like? We don't simply go through life. We grow through life. And again, every mother, every father, 
Every grandmother, every grandfather who's ever had the privilege of raising children. When you have the little boy or you have the little girl, the little girl will stick her tiny toes in mom's shoes. The young man will begin to put on father's shoes. It's only a problem when he begins to put on his mother's dress that we have other issues that we have to struggle with. And we can talk about that after the service. But in order to make the illustration work, I think you understand that it is normal for young men to want to be like their dad and young women to want to be like their mom. And so spiritual growth and Christian maturation means that we begin to want to look like Jesus. We want to follow him in his character. We begin like Peter says in first Peter chapter two, verse two, like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. In what sense? Remember what your salvation is. It's the redemption that's been wrought by God in Christ. Your sin has been forgiven and you've been reconciled to God through the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, then Peter will write, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How do we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We learn about assurance. We learn about the Bible. We learn about the character and the person of Jesus. We learn about assurance. And by the way, assurance means to put beyond all doubt. We become convinced of the reality of Jesus, the promise given by God concerning our lives, the salvation that's been wrought by God in Christ. Now, I need to tell you something. Mere change isn't necessarily growth. Mere change is not necessarily growth. He's changed in what way he started coming to church. He's changed in what way? He's carrying around a Bible. He's changed in what way? He prays. Hey, well, you know what? I'm glad that you carry around a Bible. And I'm glad that you pray. And I'm glad you go to church. But change isn't a change simply in the things that you do. Change is a change that takes place when we become like Christ. It's the change on the inside. He's going to church. He's reading a Bible. He's praying. All of that is good. But guess what? Are you becoming like Jesus? Are you cultivating the character of Jesus? Are you becoming Christ-like? In your character, in your conduct, J.C. Ryle wisely wrote, quote, gradual growth in grace, growth in knowledge, growth in faith, growth in love, growth in holiness, growth in humility, growth in spiritual mindedness. All this I see clearly taught and urged in Scripture and clearly exemplified in the lives of many of God's saints, but sudden instantaneous leaps from conversion to consecration. I don't see that in the Bible, unquote. Growth is gradual. So be patient. Be patient with yourself. Be patient when the seed has been planted in the soil and the seed 
makes its way out and you see the greenest little sliver make its way through the dirt. When my mother told me to stop taking the seed out of the cup and leave it alone. Jackpot. The seed began to grow. And if you stop digging in the surface of the soil of the people around you and you cover them with dirt, metaphorically, you cover them with manure, metaphorically, and you allow it to do its job. Be patient. Be patient with yourself. Make praying a priority. Make Bible study a priority. Do you know why we make such a big deal out of the assurance of salvation and why we make it a priority? Because the first work of Satan is to cast doubt on the work of God and salvation in your life. No wonder John wrote in 1 John, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does does not have life, it says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. So when you hear the voice say, you don't really believe you're saved. You don't really believe that your sins are forgiven. You don't really believe that by trusting and receiving Christ, that that's all that matters. How are you going to survive that attack? In 1 John chapter 5, when it says, and God has given us eternal life. I'm going to ask you a simple question. Who gives eternal life? That's pretty simple. God gives eternal life. Does Gino give eternal life? Does Billy Graham give eternal life? Do you give eternal life? No, it comes from God. Where is eternal life found? In his son. Eternal life is found in his son. Eternal life isn't found in me preaching. It isn't in you listening. Eternal life is found in his son. Who has eternal life? The person who has the son. It doesn't say the person who has a Bible and the person who goes to church and the person who says pleasant words. It doesn't say the person who has joy or peace. The person who has eternal life has the son. And if you don't have the son, you don't have eternal life. And so guess what? We can ask that question. Who has eternal life? He who has the son. Who doesn't? The people who don't have the son. Well, I have a good moral life, but you don't have the son. I have a great church, but you don't have the son. I'm generous and I give to the poor, but you don't have the son. Think about it for just a moment. Evidence of growth includes inner peace. Evidence of growth is a new awareness of sin and a hatred for sin and victory over sin and a love for God and a willingness to read and know and love the Bible, God's word, a sense of forgiveness, a willingness to forgive others, a new concern for others. Spiritual growth and spiritual maturity 
will include things like assurance of salvation and assurance that your prayers are being heard by God. Just like it says in John 16, 24, until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. But Satan is quick to say, you don't really believe that God is interested in what you have to say. If there is a God, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Don't you think he's busy running the affairs of the universe? Do you seriously think he has time for you? But in John 16, Jesus said, until now, you haven't asked for anything in my name. Ask. Look what the text says. Ask. And maybe I'll hear and maybe not. It doesn't say that. It says, ask and you will receive. Why? And your joy will be complete. Is your joy incomplete? Is there an emptiness and a darkness? Jesus gives us permission to ask in his name. What does that mean? Does that mean if you tag on and in Jesus name? I don't think so. I think what it means is by the authority of Jesus, by the character of Jesus, by the conduct of Jesus, by the promise of Jesus. It's by all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done. Don't you want assurance of victory over sin? Don't you want assurance of forgiveness of sin? Don't you want assurance of guidance? Don't you want to know how to put Jesus first? Don't you want to love in his strength? Don't you want to know God's word and trust God's word? Don't you want to love your family? Don't you want to love your friends? Don't you want to love your enemies? Don't you want to be generous? Don't you want to know what it's like to be plugged in and part of a loving fellowship of believers? Don't you want to know what the scripture means when it says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Don't you want to be able to share your faith and encourage others and experience that peace and that joy and that forgiveness and allow it to become a part and parcel of your identity? That's the point. That's the difference between immaturity and maturity. But make no mistake about it. Our knowledge of God must lead to a more intimate relationship with God. Or we run the risk of becoming just like the religious leaders who had gathered around and they had listened to Jesus and they somehow thought that being able to memorize the scripture and understand it in chronological order, that that would somehow safely substitute for knowing him and loving him. But it never will. It never will. I've spent my whole life to try and understand this book and understand its content. But it will never, ever safely substitute for real friendship and real relationship with the Lord. A.W. Tozer warned his generation how tragic that we in this dark day have had our seeking done for us by our teachers 
Everything is made to center upon the initial act of accepting Christ, a term, incidentally, which is not found in the Bible. And we are not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. We've been snared in the coils of a spurious logic which insists that if we have found him, we need no more seek him. The experiential heart theology of a grand army of fragrant saints is rejected in favor of a smug interpretation of scripture, which would certainly have sounded strange to an Augustine or a Rutherford or a Brainerd. Unquote. There's a fine line between odor and fragrance, isn't there? What's that odor? And what's that fragrance? The moment you use the word odor, you think you're going, hmm, that's not a welcome smell. And once you use the term fragrance... It's an invitation. And so Jesus says in verse 29. But when the grain ripens. Immediately he puts in the sickle. Because the harvest has come. I want to ask you a question. What do you think that means? All life matures. There comes a time when the grain is harvested. What do you think it means? And by the way, one morning the farmer gets up and he says, today's the day that the harvest will come. Do you think the grain knows? you think the grain is out in the field going, ah, ah, it's judgment day, ah, here comes the tractor, ah. The grain has no idea that harvest has come. And so, it may include the idea that the believer's sowing will eventually produce fruit. Remember, we know what the Bible says, that the word doesn't go out void. The God of the Bible honors his word. We can rest assured of reaping some harvest. The grain enters the soil and dies to self. The grain goes down and then it goes up. The life of Christ and the character of Christ ripens into love, which must include the principle of self-giving and self-denial. And you ripen into a place of love and to a place of giving and self-denial. For some, they labor and they labor and they labor and they barely see any results. We know that one person plants, another waters. God produces the increase. Or it may mean that the believer is harvested. We are taken by God to heaven. To be with Jesus forever. And there has to be a sense in which that is true. You were saved to be his constant companion throughout eternity so that you will accompany him forever and ever. The believer reaches the point of maturation or the believer reaches the place of consummation or completion. Early on, when I was a younger man, a much younger man, we used to sing a song. 
Golden ages never lay your hands on me. Written in the pages is a life beyond the key. And when our work on earth is done, we'll be living in a life that carries on. The golden age doesn't simply begin the moment that you die and you're transported to heaven. It begins in constant friendship and fellowship with the God who loves you. In Revelation 14, 13, it says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord, and from henceforth, yea, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. There's a moment when maturation is complete and the harvest takes place. And the kingdom comes. After World War II, my grandfather Geraci brought seeds from Sicily. When he came to this country, he brought fig trees or fig seeds. He actually even brought a little fig tree. He brought squash seeds and he brought this Italian green bean. And my father, my grandfather loved his garden and the fruit from the garden was brought from a far country and it was planted in fresh soil and we benefited from it. And there was no squash like my grandmother's squash and no green beans like my grandmother's green beans. And there were no fig cookies at Christmas time like my grandmother's fig cookies, the green beans and the squash And the figs always left a profound taste of joy. And that's what the word of God does. It enters your mouth and then your heart and it always tastes like joy. The life of the kingdom. God's life. If it's going to be ours, it first must go down and then it comes up it takes root and then it produces fruit and the work of sowing and the joy of reaping becomes your work and my work and your joy and my joy I think that there's a reason why Jesus loved to use the garden image of planting and sowing and harvesting. The harvest reminds us of God's providence and the harvest reminds us of God's faithfulness. But you know what else the harvest does? The harvest always reminds us of the instability of human life. Because there's an appointed time when we pass from this earth. The earth may appear to abide forever, but the Bible says that one day the earth and everything in it will pass away. Do you realize that in ancient cultures, people would measure their life by harvest? Everything was determined before the harvest or during the harvest or after the harvest. Harvests measure our lives and the harvest reminds us to think about death. And death is the great reaper. When death thrusts its sickle into the harvest, all heads bow down. And the harvest isn't restricted to winter or spring or summer or fall. But again, 
to the Christian, death is no longer the king of terror. I want to tell you something. We are cut down when we are ripe. And each and every one of you are either growing or dying. I want to close with something I came across many years ago. The author is unknown. I'm going to close with this. He wrote, sometimes we must be hurt in order to grow. We must fail in order to know. We must lose in order to gain. Some lessons are learned best only through pain. Sometimes our vision clears only after our eyes are washed with tears. Sometimes we have to be broken so we can be tender, sick so we can rest and think better on things more important than work or fun, trip near death so we can assess how we've ran. Sometimes we have to suffer lack so we could know God's provision, feel another's pain so we can have a sense of mission. So take to heart, my friend, if you don't understand today, Instead of grumbling, ask God what he meant to say. In order to learn, you must endure and learn to see the bigger picture. In order to grow, you must stand. Look beyond the hurt to God's loving hand that takes what is good and what is best. And on this blessed thought... Rest as your anxious heart with questions wait. God's hand only gives what his loving heart dictates. You will get exactly what you need in order to accomplish the plan of God in your life. And one day, when you're ripe, He comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that maturation is miraculous and mysterious, invisible, imperceptible, gradual, continual, And Lord, we know that there are things that will make for maturity or make maturity impossible. Lord, how long as men and women will we long for that which is less than what we really need? And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit. That that which you purposed will take place, we will grow Lord, we know that Paul wrote that for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed into the image of Jesus. And we know that each and every morning and each and every evening, we are looking a little bit more or a little bit less than we did the day before. That we will look like Jesus or we won't look like Jesus. So again, Lord, we pray that you would mold us and shape us 
into the men and women that could be used by you for your glory. Lord, we pray that we would grow down so that we could grow up, produce fruit, and share it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.